Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28 2 23 This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington DC and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, and we are joined by our usual gang of suspects, including, of course, Rosa Brooks from Georgetown University Law Center. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well. Thank you, David. Uh, That's good to hear. And Edward Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing today, Ed? Splendidly, thank you, David. And our recently absent friend, because he has been off in Berlin, which he still is, um, David Sanger of the New York Times, and also the author of the upcoming book, New Cold Wars. Pre-order it now, wherever you pre-order fine books. How are you doing, David? You know, uh, pretty nice. You know, it's been a very mild Berlin winter and uh, a lovely time to be here. If it wasn't for the fact that the world is falling apart. Uh, well, Berlin has oh, some experience with that. Um, yes, yes, they do it well. Yeah, they <laughs> Um, you know, enough beer and sausages and almost anything is tolerable. Um, well, let's, let's start out with some developments impacting that part of the world. Um, here in the United States yesterday, there was a meeting between the president of the United States, um, the Senate majority leader, the minority leader from the house, um, uh, the, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who today announced he was getting out of the leadership business, too bad, and um, uh, Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, in which everybody uh, turned their attention to Johnson and said, 
look, if you don't approve aid for Ukraine, we're going to lose. Chuck Schumer called it one of the most intense meetings he has ever been in in the Oval Office. Uh, and clearly nothing is, uh, you know, more uh, galvanizing to the attention of people in Ukraine than whether or not Mike Johnson has gotten this message. Uh, meanwhile, in Europe, they're trying to send a message that uh, even as the U.S. hesitates, they are there, and that has included, um, uh, you know, approving uh, aid package for Ukraine, approving Sweden uh, for membership in NATO, finally, thanks to the foot dragging of the Hungarians. And recently, uh, and I will turn to you, David, for your take on this, there has been a, a, a mini flurry of two countries saying, hey, we would even send our troops to Ukraine if things got that bad. Um, is it your sense, David, that Europe is extremely worried about little elfin Mike Johnson? Um, they're worried about little elfin Mike Johnson and big elfin Donald Trump. Uh, they're worried about the fact that even if Trump loses, it's becoming increasingly apparent to them that the United States is not going to keep financing the Ukraine war at the pace at which it has. And while it's a little hard to put it all together, my sort of back of the envelope is the U.S. has spent about $125 billion over the past two years on this war. I can't imagine a fraction of that happening. Um, you guys may remember the Vilnius summit last summer, which was when um, uh, President Biden and the German Chancellor, um, Chancellor Schultz, got in the way of a discussion of, of Ukraine uh, joining NATO. But their alternative to it was, let's move Ukraine to the to an Israel model, you know, have a regular uh, uh, aid package so that for the next 10 years they would know how they're building up and that Russia would never be tempted to do this again. Well, Israel package, they can't even put together a one-year package right now. Um, and as for Johnson, I mean, he might agree to go ahead and do this, but he could end up losing his job the way his predecessor did uh, over this. And while I know that Mitch McConnell is not always the favorite character of listeners of Deep State Radio, um, he has been one of the stalwarts on getting aid to Ukraine. And my bet is his successor will not be out of that tradition. Um. Well, certainly, you know, his, his most likely successors have all shown uh, an inclination to bend the knee towards Trump. And if Trump is opposing this, uh, that's, that, that, that makes that more likely. Um, Ed, you know, you're, uh, you're a man about town. You've got your ear to the ground. Uh, what, what are you hearing about people's expectations as to whether or not Mike Johnson's gotten the message? Um, yeah, so I, th I think uh, a discharge petition was is his get out of jail free free card, and a couple have been filed. And uh, as you know, that enables a vote to be um, to bypass committee and everything else. And and the speaker can claim it was nothing to do with him. Um, and there's no doubt if there, if a vote is put to the floor of the house, a uh, majority would support 
voting for Ukraine, even subtracting the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan, um, pro-Putin wing of the party, and the progressives who wouldn't want to vote for a package that included Israel funding. Even adding those up, you'd probably get two-thirds of the House voting for aid to Ukraine. So I, I'd still... Um, I've still got a, you know, perhaps Panglossian sort of feeling that the money will come through. It will come through late. Um, and I share David's, I share David's sort of characterization of European skepticism about how much more will be coming in the year or two ahead. But I don't think Johnson would lose his job over that. I think Johnson would lose his job over keeping the government open. And I think that's an unpardonable sin. Um, uh, amongst the crazy crowd, and uh, and since its favourite food is 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 the children of the revolution, he will be devoured uh, along with McCarthy if he permits that to happen. That's where I think his vulnerability lies. I'm fascinated, though. I mean, you know, David's David's in Europe, but I'm fascinated that Macron, the president of um, the the other nuclear power in Europe, but along with Britain, but that has given considerably less money and military equipment to the Ukrainians than any other um, big country, considerably less, is now saying, "Oh well, let's send troops in." <laughs> so, I mean, call me, call me, call me a bit cynical about Gallic gesturism, but um, am I right? This is Gallic gesturism. Uh, I, I can tell you, having just talked to somebody. Uh, who was in the meeting uh, with them. You know, the whole idea was to come out of this meeting in Paris with um, a great sense of unity uh, in the whole thing. And uh, instead, the first time that he gets asked, that, that Macron gets asked a question uh, after this Paris meeting at the beginning of the week, uh, his his answer was, well, we may, we won't, cut out the possibility of sending in uh, troops. Later, the French backed down and said, we didn't say combat troops, we meant maybe for training and this and that. But it was astounding that, that the Germans, the Norwegians, everybody had to step up, and the U.S., and say, we are not putting troops into Ukraine. That is the beginning of a NATO war uh, with Russia. Well, perhaps meant, there is a regiment, there's a brand, Macron brand management regiment, of troops that can just market everywhere on the ground, but not on the front line. Yeah, but it's a, it's a bunch of French advertising executives that they drop in behind the lines. Um, Rosa, we've just heard from uh, Ed um, and David with a rather pessimistic medium to long-term view about U.S. support. What if Biden wins? You know, what if they give the money and it seems like it's working for Ukraine and uh, the the MAGA forces are repudiated in November. Don't you think the, that that it's likely that the U.S. could then get back on track? Mm, no, um, unfortunately, you know, you know, I'm the wrong person to turn to for some. Well, sort of I kind of knew that, but no, I, I think that the the rancor and paralysis that we're seeing right now, unfortunately, is not going to go away, even if Trump is is decisively defeated at the polls. You know, and barring barring a complete Democratic takeover of both the House and the Senate with reasonably healthy majorities, we're going to continue to see this kind of brinksmanship uh, and game playing going forward. And it really is just stunning to me, as Ed said, that 
that the real third rail for poor old, poor old little elfin Mike Johnson, uh, you know, may not even be Ukraine. It may be, it may be keeping the government functioning. Um, the, the degree of nihilism amongst the Republicans in the House has reached such a level that there's no interest whatsoever in, in doing anything. There's no, there's no sentiment that says, hey, let's compromise and get some stuff done. The sentiment is entirely, you know, burn it down, make it stop. Uh, and, and that's not going to go away. It's, it, I mean, it may go, I, I think, I think getting rid of that, getting rid of that dynamic is going to be quite possibly the work of a generation is not going to be magically gone after, after January, 2025. Um, David, I'm, I'm always curious as to how American politics is perceived uh, by Europeans, but we're at such a bizarre and dysfunctional moment um, that uh, they, they must be scratching their heads even more than usual. What you know? What are the questions they have for you? So the first question is: What are the circumstances under which Trump could win? And because they're watching this momentum of Trump going through the the primaries so successfully that I, I'm not sure they're fully thinking about the difference between what it's like for Trump to run the primary and what it's like for him to run in general. So, you know, suddenly they get interested in those 20% of Haley voters in South Carolina who said they would never vote for Donald Trump. And, you know, what does that mean? And so forth. Um, there is such interest here that the news about the primaries is flashed on these little um, brief news summaries that you see running in the subway cars and in the subway stations. Um, would we do German by-elections in, in our subway stations? Wait, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> New, York, New York Times reporters ride on public transportation? I find this not credible. We are we are just of the people. David, oh yeah, as, as, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as we know, as we as we, we know, and 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 I I left your Porsche, you know, yeah, right um, back in the states. Right, right. <laughs> Look, I've seen we've done enough of these podcasts with you off in the pre, you know the the royal suite at some hotel in some place <laughs> that uh that we find we, that. We do. We do know that you don't eat Chick-fil-A. We know that. That's, that's true. That's, that's absolutely true. Just um, toss that in there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so the first question is, Trump, and the second question is, what is the president's health really like? You know, they're looking at the videos and seeing him slow down, but they're also watching the comedy routine that he did with um, Seth Meyers the other day and thinking, you know, he looked... Uh, like he was pretty lively in that. So that's the second thing. The third thing they're trying to figure out is when we get to the discussion that we just had, could the U.S. be pulling back even if Biden wins? Um, that's a, a concept that is just beginning to sort of sink in. Uh, that's that's interesting. You know, it, it, it resonates a little bit with me with uh, Ed's column uh, today in the Financial Times, in which he talks about um, how, uh, although things are going pretty well economically, Americans continue to be uh, fractious and alienated. Um, uh, do, do, Ed, do you think that 
this state we're in is something that is, uh, you know, comprehensible to the rest of the world? I mean, I think the rest of the world studies America, you know, more than it ever has, and it studies America more than it does any other foreign democracy. Uh, I mean, maybe China in different ways is catching up with that. But um, so, uh, you know, they, they shouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's been apparent to foreign observers for many years that the division, even pre-Trump, the division, you know, between red and blue America is pretty even and not that volatile. Um and that uh, every election is a close election, even when you've got, you know, Trump at his, at his worst self and he keeps sort of, he keeps lowering that bar. It's still going to be a close um, election. And I think, you know, if, if, for example, you're looking at it from another, from other big democracies that are prone to the most virulent forms of populism, such as France or Britain, um, you know, the difference is, the numbers jump about all over the place there. I mean, later this year, the Conservative Party that delivered Brexit will be wiped out. Um, so it, it, there's a lot more volatility in the numbers and in the loyalties. And therefore, that implies, although the, uh, countries like Britain and France, and the same, by the way, applies to France as what I just said about Britain, um, that although they are threatened by the same kind of right-wing politics, um there there is a sort of um performance um there is a performance element um that means the right can get punished and i don't think anything would dissuade that share of america that's going to vote for trump not to vote for trump i don't think anything would persuade them not to vote for him so it clearly goes way deeper there is i think people do recognize there's there's profound sociology beneath this political polarization. There's something deeper. Well, let me ask it. Let me ask you a question, Rose. I know you've been thinking a lot about uh, what could happen in the upcoming election. Uh, something else that happened uh, today, I think, uh, was that um, uh, parliamentary leaders from 27 different countries sent a note to Elf and Mike Johnson saying, uh, hey, you know, uh, this really matters. Release this aid package. It, ma- it, it matters to us. Um, typically, foreign leaders like to stay out of elections. But if elections are of great consequence, like ours is, do you think there is a role um, uh, for, for example, our allies uh, to sort of say, you know, Mr. Trump is not correct when he says we can't wait for him to come back uh, or Mr. Trump and, uh, uh, you know, undermining democracy, we think is bad for this country or embracing Russia is bad. I mean, do you think our allies ought to get a little more vocal in the run up to this election? I do. But there's there's a caveat here. So so, so on, on the one hand, I think uh, as a general matter, it's like the friends don't let friends drive drunk campaign that just as we in the United States have always seen it as our role to prod allies and partners when we see them doing something that we think is, is really wrongheaded, uh, particularly, in, you know, whether it's from a security perspective or from its, whether it's from a human rights and rule of law perspective, we certainly have never hesitated to say, Hey, you should, you should not do that. Change your ways. We're upset about this. Um, 
I don't think U.S. allies should hesitate to do that with us. Uh, I think that sometimes nations like individuals need their friends to give them a little bit of uh, uh, tough love. Um, here's the caveat. Um, and this goes back to the deep-rooted red-blue divide in the United States. I, I think, yes, that divide is longstanding. But one thing that has changed in the last you know, 15 years or so, uh, and particularly just in the last you know, five, six, seven years, um, the old adage about politics ends at the water's edge, it had some truth to it until relatively recently. That there, there was uh, much more of a set, there, there was much more consensus between the leaders of the GOP and the leaders of the Democratic Party on sort of core foreign policy and national security priorities. And that doesn't mean that there were never bitter disagreements, but the sort of general consensus on things such as uh, free trade or such as uh, uh, the importance of alliances and particularly European, traditional European alliances, NATO, et cetera, um, those were pretty bedrock uh, uh, shared agreements between both the sort of mainstream conservatives and mainstream liberals. That is gone now. You know, that, 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 that's just completely gone. Um, and the result of that is when you when you have that consensus, when you had that consensus, uh, then it matters both to to both parties when core U.S. allies, you know, the British, the French, the Germans um, uh, start putting pressure on us. That makes a difference because both parties recognized and valued their cooperation, their assistance. Um, indeed, there were times where it was 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 crucial. You know, for instance, the the first Bush administration, uh, not not H W, but but uh, Junior George W. Bush, uh, when the Bush administration's policies on uh, the treatment of detainees, and talking specifically about the use of techniques that constitute torture as a matter of international and European law, when the British said to us, said to the United States, said to the Bush administration, "Oh, guess what?" Um, now that the European Court of Human Rights has said that's torture, um, we can't be part of your, we can't cooperate and turn detainees over to you in Afghanistan, for instance. That actually did make a difference in U.S. policy because the U.S. really wanted and needed British security cooperation, uh, et cetera. And when the Brits were saying, uh, we're not going to be able to do this stuff, it forced some changes in U.S. policies. Leave it, leave it, leaving aside the whole issue of Britain uh, uh, now increasingly rejecting any notion that it is bound by those European human rights norms. Um, but, but at the moment, when we have one party, the most the, the, the controlling parts of which are saying we actually totally don't care if we get cooperation from any of our allies, including our longest-standing, most traditional allies, then I don't think. You know, the, the friends don't let friends drive drunk thing doesn't matter if one one party is saying you're not my friend or I don't really care or, you know, I don't care what you think. And that, I think, is where we are right now. And and, and indeed, I think we're at a moment when it, it's really hard to know, you know, what what if, if I could run the world, which regrettably I don't. Um, um, uh, you know, what would I want our European allies to do? There's even a possibility on some issues that the louder our allies push on certain issues, that the more it alienates the, the far right, the more it pushes them away, the more it makes Donald Trump and the MAGA contingent of the Republican Party simply want to say, well, if they want it, 
then it can't be good for us because we reject all those ridiculous global entanglements, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so I, so, so I, th- I think we're at a really dangerous moment. We're at, we're at a, we're at a moment where a substantial percentage of the U.S. population and the power, the most powerful figures in the Republican Party, led, of course, by Donald Trump, um, not only don't care what allies think but in some ways seem perversely determined to spit in their face just for the heck of it. So is it a, good, is it a helpful thing to have allies put pressure on us right now? I don't know. I, I, w- I would like to switch to another topic in a moment, but I see that uh, traditional uh, clue of David Sanger shifting in his seat a little bit like he has something to say. So, d- do you, David, or are you just uncomfortable in your seat? Well, I'm always uncomfortable uh, when I'm on. Yeah. Deep State Radio. A lot of pressure. Um, to be on yeah, no, it is. But uh, uh, Rosa uh, is exactly right. But I, and I think that if you take her analysis just one step further, it just gets to a fundamental difference in the parties right now, which never existed before, which is both parties used to believe that one of America's greatest strengths was the, the, the radiating effect of its alliances from the end of World War II forward. And that was the core of Ronald Reagan's policy. And it was the core of Barack Obama's in in many ways, and certainly a belief of Joe Biden. And what's happened is from a small group of people, starting with Trump, but not exclusively him, forward, they've now taken the opposite view in the Republican Party, that actually alliances are a hindrance. And I don't think anybody in Europe here or not many people in Europe here can even begin to understand what would lead you to believe that. I do think that that both the Obama administration uh, quietly and the Trump administration very loudly calling for Europe to spend more on its own defense has done some good. And you're now seeing two thirds of NATO hitting the 2% uh, mark. The problem is they're hitting it at exactly the moment when we discovered the 2% mark is wildly insufficient. If you added up the commitments that Germany, where I am now, has made for defense for the next few years, and then you look at 2% of what's a stagnant GDP here, it's not going to do it. They're going to need 35 or 4%. And I do not understand politically how you get there with the European population right now. Interesting point. Of course, what we, we spend three and a half percent or something, right? I mean, that's... We do. We do. And they're going to have to as well. But I don't think that there are not many uh, European leaders who are willing to go step up and say that in public. The defense minister here, uh, Boris Besorius, is basically the only one who has. Um. Excellent point, and I'm really glad that we've had this opportunity to talk about Europe. I want to switch the the, the topic for um, a moment, but in a moment, uh, this is the point in the podcast where we say to everybody who's not um, a member, uh, you should become a member so you can listen to the whole podcast and get to hear all the interesting bonus content on this and all the other podcasts that we've got going. I think there's something like 17 each week. Uh, so that's a lot of bonus content. Um, and uh, membership's only five bucks a month for one more day. Then it's going to go up a little bit. So this is really your last chance to uh, get that bargain price of a latte 
uh, per month uh, uh, kind of membership at at, at uh, the DSR network. Um, for now, if you're not a member, bye bye. And if you are a member, stand by.